Have you ever wanted a sign from God? I certainly have. Maybe you wanted God to send you a text message or an email or write on the wall or maybe even just come to you in a dream and a vision and say, you know, I want you to go to this college or I want you to take this job or I want you to move to this community. There have been many moments in my life where I think things would be a lot easier if God would just tell us what to do, right? Well, I think the area of life that maybe causes the most headache, the area of life where we might ask for God, uh, ask God for a sign the most often has to be in our relationships. How many of us wish that God would just tell us, maybe past, present, or future, I want you to marry this person so that we could just get rid of one of the most annoying, one of uh, the, the single most uh, biggest evidences of depravity in our world, dating. Dating is the worst. One of my friends calls dating purgatory. Now, I don't believe in purgatory. The Bible doesn't believe in purgatory, but I think it gives us a great picture of what dating actually is. It's this temporary holding zone until you get to go to the real thing or, or the alternative, I guess. I don't know. So <laughs> dating is terrible. And think of what would happen if, if God would just appear to us and say, you see that person over there? I want you to marry them. We could get rid of the whole dating thing. Now, if I was to agree to an arranged marriage, I would certainly agree to it if God was setting me up. If it was anyone else, probably not. But that would be really nice. Now, let's be clear. Ladies, if a guy comes up to you tonight and says, God just told me that I am supposed to marry you, ladies, run, don't walk the other direction, <laughs> right? But that's besides the point. My guess is some of us or all of us at some point have wished, God, give me a sign, or God, tell me who I'm supposed to marry. And I wonder if the prophet that we're going to look at tonight asked that same thing of God. He said, God, I want you to tell me who I'm supposed to marry. I want you to write on the wall. I want you to send me a text message and say, go marry this person. But what's a little different in his story than ours is God actually granted his request. And I don't know if it came via a dream or a text message or a smoke signal or what it was, but God came to Hosea and said, okay, I heard your prayer and I'll give you an answer. Hosea, I want you to go marry a prostitute. You know, if you were Hosea, how might you respond? Wait, is this a joke? Are you serious? Did I have just one too many stale Christmas cookies last night? Like, what in the world is going on? Who thinks that's a good idea? You can just hear how the interaction would go where God would say, no, uh, actually, Jose, I'm serious. I want you to go marry a prostitute. Which is why this book probably has the most provocative opening line of any book in all of Scripture, where God appears to his prophet and says, go marry a prostitute, which has led many scholars to simply dismiss the book of Hosea as an allegory or a metaphor because it's just too far-fetched, it's just too much to believe. It just sounds like a story that somebody like Pastor Andrew would make up to prove his point in their sermon, but there's no way that it could be real. But when we read this text, there's no indication inside the text or outside the text that this is anything but historical narrative. This actually happened, which provides some problems for us because it's not easy to interpret. Certainly, we understand the story. When we read the text, it's as clear as day. We know how this works. The hard part is applying it to our life. But I'm convinced that there's so much relevancy in this book that doesn't apply just to the world around us. It applies to us as well.
So if you were with us two weeks ago, we dove into our series, Major in the Minors and the Minor Prophets, and we kind of gave an overview, a 30,000-foot picture of the prophets. The Minor Prophets are the last 12 books of the Old Testament, and they go somewhat in chronological order, where Hosea is maybe the oldest, and Malachi is potentially the, the youngest in, in time. We don't know the dates of all of them. But the minor prophets, they were these pastors who preached during the spiritual decline of Israel. As Israel, the ten northern tribes, due to the two southern tribes, as they were pursuing other gods, as they were running away from the covenant with God, then God raised up these minor prophets to bring about change, to preach a message of repentance to a world that didn't want anything to do with their message. So tonight we get to look at the first prophet, Hosea. So if you have your Bibles, feel free to turn there with me, and we can look at this book. We don't know that much about Hosea outside of what we see in the text. We see in the first verse, which is kind of the introductory remarks, that Hosea actually prophesied during a span of a couple of kings that was somewhere between 790 B.C. to 686 B.C. He didn't live during that whole time, but we think he probably recorded these sermons somewhere in the latter half of the 8th century. But he preached at a unique time for the people of Israel. He preached to the 10 northern tribes, and things were going really well. There was this peace. There was this prosperity. But at the same time, there was this spiritual decline as the people turned farther and farther away from God and rejected him more and more. There was this prosperity in the face of moral decline. That sound familiar? Doesn't sound anything like our world, does it? So that was the culture that Hosea was preaching to. And this is one of the most unique books throughout all of the minor prophets. It actually starts with a narrative, and then the last half, or two-thirds of the book, is a prophecy. So we're actually going to break this book into two parts. Tonight, we're going to look at the narrative, and then next week, we're going to look at the prophetic portions of Hosea. So tonight, we're just going to focus on chapters 1 and 3. So follow along with me as I read Hosea chapter 1. I'll start in verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take for yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now, at our Surviving Spiritual Winter event, uh, Jim Messerly, I'm pretty sure, used the word fart from stage. And he said that was okay in church. I'm pretty sure whoredom is worse, and we just said it three times right? It's in the Bible, so I guess we can use it in church. That's a provocative way to start the book. And it's interesting that uh, the way he starts is when the Lord first spoke to Hosea. Did you catch that? This was Hosea's call to ministry. This was the first time that God spoke to him. And how does a call to ministry normally work for a pastor or a prophet? Maybe they go to seminary. Maybe they go take a new job. Maybe the elders come and lay hands on them and, and call them into pastoral ministry. What happens to Hosea? God appears to him and says, go and marry a prostitute. The line is almost unbelievable. It's in such a matter-of-fact way. So Hosea goes down to the market and finds a woman, a harlot, who makes her living selling sexual favors to any man that will pay. He gets down on one knee, opens that little box, presents her with the ring, and asks her to marry him and takes her home as his wife. I do think Hosea at least made one mistake. He married a prostitute with the name Gomer. You know, if you're going to marry a prostitute, at least pick one with with a better name, but he didn't ask for my opinion. He certainly got the short end of the stick, didn't he? 
go marry a prostitute. But think of the opposite. Think of Gomer, a woman who was most certainly abused by the men who paid her, didn't have a steady source of income, probably didn't have a safe place to live. Her life had been filled with brokenness and pain. No one was going to love Gomer. Who's going to marry a prostitute? If Hosea had the short end of the stick, then Gomer most certainly won the lottery as she gets redemption and forgiveness and hope. Pretty cool. Well, as the story continues, she conceived and bore him a son, verse 4, and the Lord commanded him, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I'll punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I'll put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel, and on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Well, it's interesting. God commanded Hosea who to marry, and then at the end of the day, he doesn't even let Hosea pick the names of his own children. And he says, name your first child Jezreel, which is one of the least common names in all of the Old Testament. There's only one other person who's given the name Jezreel, but it's actually the name of a city, which then is the name of a region, the Valley of Jezreel in northern Israel, which is kind of a symbolic place in the history of Israel. It mentions a man named Jehu, who was a king who was profoundly bloodthirsty, and he shed all sorts of innocent blood in the Valley of Jezreel. So then the name of Hosea's oldest son is a symbol. Name your child Jezreel, which is a reminder that someday God himself is going to defeat Israel in that same valley of Jezreel, which is quite the prophecy because do you know what happened a hundred years later? The Assyrians came in and they defeated the Israelites in this exact valley. The prophecy came true. But imagine naming a child Jezreel. Maybe a modern synonym would be, what if you named your first child Wuhan or Chernobyl? a name synonymous with bloodshed and destruction and death, that would be what it's like to name your child Jezreel. Not in the top 100 names of 2021. Well, it gets worse. Verse 6, she conceived and bore him a daughter, and the Lord said to him, call her name no mercy. If you're reading in the NIV, it says, call her name not loved. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. I will have mercy on the house of Judah. I will save them by the Lord their God, and I will not save them by bow or by sword, by war, by horses, by horsemen. <laughs> the, the Hebrew word is lo ruhama. It means no mercy or no pity or means unloved. Imagine naming your infant little girl unloved. Imagine how that would work in a second grade classroom. First day of school. The teacher goes around and has all of the students introduce themselves and share their favorite adventure from summer vacation, right? And, she, and it's her turn to go, and she says, hello, everyone, my name is unloved, or I am unloved. And uh, the teacher takes a step back and says, you're unloved. You know, uh, what's going on at home? Do we need to take you to the guidance counselor? Like, is everything okay? That's quite the thing to unload on the first day of school. And she says, no, that's my given name. I am unloved. And the teacher asks, well, who gave you that name? <laughs> she says, God did. It'd be quite an interesting first meeting between Jose and the teacher at the first parent-teacher conference, wouldn't it? Probably not one of the top 100 names of 2021, calling your daughter unloved. Then verse 8, when she'd weaned, no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people, or in Hebrew, lo ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. 
So you name one child after a city of bloodshed, another child after uh, not being loved, and then you name the third child, not my people. This just keeps getting better. I mean, imagine how that would work. Hosea's down at Jojo's jungle with all the other dads, and he sees his son, Loamin, he's out playing with the other kids, and he's not behaving very well. So he yells at him across the jungle and says, not, not my people. Stop being mean to the other kids. Play nice. And you see all the other parents' heads turn, like, what did you just call your son? Not my people? And they're thinking, I thought Elon Musk named his kids really weird. But this, this guy, I've got to report him in Child Protective Services. But we have to understand that God has a purpose in everything that he does. And he had a purpose in giving these kids their names. Because they were a symbol to the culture around them. They became the subject of Hosea's sermons. So that when they heard him even use those names in public at at school or at the playground, then Hosea would just break into one of his impromptu sermons and say something like, you thought that was strange. This child is a symbol of you. You are not God's people. You are not loved because you have abandoned God's covenant. And unless you repent, a day of reckoning is coming and God is going to pour out his wrath on you. Probably not the most popular impromptu sermon that anyone could preach. Hosea was not the most popular preacher. His kids probably weren't the most popular kids in the classroom. And it probably didn't help that their mom was a prostitute. Things were not looking good for this family. And some scholars suggest, and I'm actually inclined to agree with them, that the second two kids don't belong to Hosea. You can kind of catch that if you read the language Carefully, in verse 3, it says, She conceived and bore him a son. If you go down a little bit farther, verse 6, she conceived and bore a daughter. It doesn't say she conceived and bore him a daughter. She just conceived and bore a daughter. Because we know at some point between chapter 1 and chapter 3, Gomer abandoned her husband, abandoned her family, goes back to her old way of life, cheats on her husband, and continues in that life of prostitution that she had known before. You can only imagine the heartbreak in Hosea's heart as his wife abandons the family and and leaves him to raise their kids all by himself. And I bet Hosea kind of wished the story was done, and that's where it ended, but God came to Hosea Again, in chapter 3. So turn the page with me and we'll start reading in chapter 3. And the Lord said to me, Go again and love a woman who is loved by another man, is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. This might be confusing because it doesn't use the name Gomer, does it? It says, go and love a woman. Now this, I'm pretty sure, most certainly is Gomer. If it was a different woman, then the text would actually be warranted to give us the name of who that was. But since it doesn't reference her, we can assume it's talking about the same person as chapter 1. And additionally, if God commanded Hosea to go and marry a different woman who is also an adulteress, then they'd actually be commit, God would be commanding Hosea to commit adultery, which God wouldn't command his prophet to actually do something that was against God's law. So this most certainly is Gomer. And he tells Hosea, go back, go back and buy your wife, bring her back into your family and redeem her. Can you imagine how it would feel if you're Hosea? This woman who you loved unconditionally 
And he'd obeyed God, goes and cheats on him, abandons him. You want me to go love her? So Hosea is torn. And he goes down to the market where she's about to be sold. And he knows that he needs to obey God. He wants to obey God, but he doesn't want to love this woman again. He doesn't want his heart broken again. So he kind of stands in the back of the crowd. And Gomer looks up. And she sees Hosea. She can't make eye contact. She's embarrassed. She's humiliated. Why is he here? Is he here to berate me? Is he here to publicly humiliate me and and give me one last lecture? So the auctioneer cries out, who's going to buy this woman for five shekels? Five shekels. And Gomer can't believe her eyes. There goes Hosea's hand in the air. And he says, I will buy her for five shekels. Well, he raises the price, and the auctioneer cries out, seven shekels. And there's another man on the other side of the room. He says, I will buy her for seven shekels. And Hosea thinks, oh man, this guy's bidding me up. This isn't going to be good. Nine shekels, and Hosea's hand goes in the air. Eleven shekels, the other man's hand goes in the air. Thirteen shekels, and Hosea cries out, I'll take her. And the auctioneer cries out, fifteen shekels. And this other man says, I will take her for fifteen shekels. And Hosea, he's not what we call a rich man. He's a prophet pastor, not a lucrative vocation. He amps out his little prophetic piggy bank before he goes down to the market and takes all he has, 15 shekels. But he remembers that he has 300 uh, liters of barley sitting at home and thinks, I maybe could use that to sweeten the deal. And he cries out, I'll take her for 15 shekels of silver and some barley. And the auctioneer says, sold to Hosea. Imagine what it would feel like to be Gomer in that moment. Completely humiliated because your husband just bought you back from slavery. Hmm. And here's what Hosea says to her in verse 3. You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore, belong to another man, and so I will also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without a king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. And afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in to fear the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. The text might be a little bit confusing, but I think what Hosea is suggesting is that there's going to be some sort of a probationary period for Gomer, where she's going to come back, she's going to live at their home, and she can't pursue other, other men, she can't pursue her old life, she's going to be faithful to Hosea, and they're not going to know each other, not, they're not going to sleep together during that time of kind of, of, of discipline, of probation. I think that's exactly what it's talking about. And you can see the parallel to the people of Israel, can't you? Because Hosea's life... God's command to go marry a prostitute and and call her back and redeem her is a picture of God's love for his people Israel, right? Because God loved Israel and he, he brought them out of slavery and brought them into Egypt and gave them this land flowing with milk and honey and gave them a relationship with himself and everything that they could ever want and anything that they could ever need. But the people of Israel, they abandon God. They run after all of the other gods. They commit spiritual adultery, shattering their covenant with their creator. But God is using this as a picture of his love for his people, that his love and his grace supersedes, it extends far above their rebellion and their idolatry, that though there's going to be a time of probation for them in exile in a foreign land, that he's going to call them back 
They're going to worship David, their king, which is Jesus. But I think the picture from this narrative extends far beyond just Israel and their relationship with God, doesn't it? Because think about what it would be like to be Gomer. Think about what it would be like to abandon her husband and go back to her old way of life and experience the pain and the regret and the emptiness of sin. Imagine what it would feel like to have Hosea by her back to bring her home, the humiliation, the humility, the kindness, the redemption. Talk about grace, talk about love. And this might not be the warmest, the fuzziest thing I've ever shared, but as we look at this text, you're Gomer. I'm Gomer. And I certainly hope that none of us are actual prostitutes, but we're certainly prostitutes in a spiritual sense because we have committed spiritual adultery forsaking the God who created us. Let's think of how God created the world. He created the world in his own image. He created us in his image, in his likeness. The world was perfect. And God gave Adam and Eve that one command. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what did they do? They broke God's only command. They ate of the tree, severing the relationship between God and man, bringing sin into the world. So you and I are born into sin. We're born natural enemies of God. That might not feel fair. How can we be punished for the sin of Adam? (laughs) Well, in reality, you and I have demonstrated by our own continual sinful behavior that if you and I were Adam or Eve, we would have done the exact same thing. Because of our own sinful choices, we've alienated ourselves. We are God's enemies. And that's exactly what we see in Romans chapter 3. Paul's quoting from a couple different Old Testament passages, and here's what he says. No one does good, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We read that text and we think, Paul, are you serious? Like, are you sure? If we searched the whole globe, we couldn't find even one good person. And Paul says, that's exactly right. There is no one who does good. Because we're we're skilled at kind of having this relative view of morality where we think of our neighbor, we think of uh, somebody that we really don't like, we think of a terrorist and we think, oh, I am way better than that person. But that's not God's standard. God's standard for morality is absolute. The standard is his perfect, infinite holiness and perfection. That is the standard. And when we compare ourselves to that standard, (laughs) none of us are even close to good. That's our first principle tonight. Discern the depth of your depravity. Discern the depth of your depravity. The truth is, as humans, we are experts at minimizing our sin. We say things like, ah, I slipped up, or ah, I, I kind of messed up. I told a white lie, or I made a mistake. We like to minimize the things that we've done wrong and kind of paint a rosier picture of ourselves than maybe is the truth. Even if you walk up to an average person on the street, random, random Joe on the street, and you say, you know, are you a good person? What would nine out of 10 people say? Maybe 99 out of 100 people? Yeah, I'm a pretty good person. 
But when we look at God's word, he teaches us the complete opposite, that none of us are good. We're all born natural enemies of God. And if we're going to be honest, when we look at our own record of sin, there's no way that we could call ourselves good. I mean, think of the big things that we've done. You know what I'm talking about? The things that we don't want anybody to know about, the things that we wish would disappear from our memory, the thing that, you know, if our friends knew about that they maybe wouldn't want to be our friends. And then we combine that with the little things, the lust, the pride, the materialism, the idolatry of self that can creep into every single aspect of our life. We are not good. We are completely and totally depraved. And that's not even the worst of it. We've earned, by our own sinful choices, eternity separated from God in a literal place called hell. That is the worst possible news. That's what Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 2. It says this in verse 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul begins that passage and says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. What can a dead person do? Nothing. Apart from a miracle... There's no way for the lungs to start breathing, for the heart to start beating. When someone is dead, there's dead. There is absolutely no hope. And that's how Paul is describing our spiritual condition, condition, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, that there is no hope for us, that we are alienated from God, that there is no bone in our body that is inclined to follow God. We are born his enemies. We need the work of a miracle. And that's where Jesus comes in. Because he saw you, he saw me at that slave market, about to be sold into slavery to sin, never to be heard from again. And Jesus puts his hand in the air and says, I will buy you. I will redeem you. I will purchase you from slavery. I will give you a new life. I will give you hope. I will give you love. I will give you forgiveness. I'm going to buy you back. But the price was a little more expensive than 15 shekels of silver and a little bit of barley. It was his life. It was his blood shed on the cross. Once heard a friend ask, you know, how, how do you know how much value something has? By how much someone's willing to pay. Jesus paid for you with his very life. That's value. That's worth. Friends, that is the good news of the gospel. And that's what this account is all about. It's one of the best pictures of the gospel from the entire Old Testament. And Jesus didn't somehow look into the future and say, wow, you know, I know Fritz is going to do great things for the gospel and for the kingdom if I, if I save him, so I'm going to save him. Or I know Rebecca is going to do amazing things at church, so I'm going to save her and redeem her. That's not how it works. Jesus didn't somehow look into the future and see those who are going to be saved and then, and then save us. No, because if that's how it worked, then our salvation would actually be contingent on our future obedience. He's saved us and he's called us. He's given us the opportunity of new life by nothing that we have done and completely by his own unmerited favor and his unconditional grace. It's amazing. 
And it's a gift that he's holding out to you today. It's a gift that he's offering to you today. But it's a gift that we have to receive. We have to say yes to Jesus. And we say yes to Jesus through two Bible words we use all the time. The first is repentance. It means turning away from our old way of life and following Jesus. Think of what repentance meant for Gomer. When Hosea came to the market and bought her back and redeemed her and called her his own, she had to leave that old way of life. She had to leave her adultery and her prostitution behind and say, I'm going to be faithful to my husband. I'm following him now. That when we decide to follow Jesus, when we turn away from the old way of life, that we're leaving that worldly stuff behind and we're following Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect because none of us are perfect. But it's a spirit-filled decision that we make at the heart level of embracing a new boss, turning away from our sin and trusting in Christ. And then the second word is, is faith, believing that when Jesus died for us, he paid for our sin, that his shed blood paid for the debt of our sin, that we might have a right relationship with God. Repentance and faith, that's what it means to say yes to Jesus. And I know in a room like this tonight, I know there's some here that haven't crossed over that line, that don't yet know Christ. And you know, you might be in a number of different categories. Maybe that first category would be someone who's oblivious to their own sin, who would say, you know, Sam, I'm a pretty good person. I think I'm, I'm good. I, I think my good outweighs my bad, and God's going to let me into heaven because of the good stuff that I've done. Or maybe you'd say, you know, I know I'm going to heaven because I was baptized as a baby or because I went to confirmation or because I go to church all the time. Friends, there's no amount of good things that we can do to earn a right status before God. We need Jesus. At some point, all of us have to cross over that line from death into life, from unbelief to belief. Or maybe you're quite the opposite. Maybe you're not at all oblivious to your sin. <laughs> maybe you're enjoying your Gomer-like life just a little bit too much. When are you going to realize that spiritual adultery never fulfills us? It just leaves us empty. When are you going to realize that chasing after the things of this world is never satisfying? Not to mention the eternal consequences of our sin. Eternity literally weighs in the balance. But maybe there's a third category. Maybe you're acutely aware of your sin. Maybe, maybe you've believed a lie from Satan who says something like this. You're just too bad. You're just too sinful. God could never love you. If everyone here knew all the things that you've done, they wouldn't even like you. They wouldn't even let you in this building. You're just too far gone to be forgiven. Friends, that is a lie, literally, from the pit of hell. There is no one too far gone for forgiveness. There is no one beyond the grasp of the cross. If God can forgive Gomer, then he can forgive you and me. What's holding you back from following Christ tonight? If you're here and maybe God's working in your heart, maybe you know tonight's the night. Tonight's the time I want to cross over from 
life into death. I know that I need to believe in Jesus. If that's you, I'm going to ask you to do something really bold tonight. I want you to stand up right where you are. I know that probably feels a little bit uncomfortable. That's something we never do here. But if you feel God work in your heart and say, yes, I want to respond to Christ tonight. Why don't you just go ahead and stand right where you are? You know, for those of us tonight that do know Christ, there's so much in this account for us because we never graduate from remembering the goodness of the gospel. We never graduate from seeking the sacrifice of our Savior. And that's our second principle I want us to write down. Seek the sacrifice of your Savior. Seek the sacrifice of your Savior. I think this account of Hosea is one of the most beautiful pictures of the gospel because it's scandalous. It doesn't really seem appropriate. It seems a little bit too far-fetched. It doesn't really seem fair. But when we think of the gospel, the gospel is not fair because Jesus, the perfect spotless son of God, he went to the cross, the one who didn't deserve to die. He died for you and he died for me, the righteous dying for dirty, rotten, filthy sinners. That is not fair. The gospel is scandalous. And no matter if we've been a Christian for one minute or we've been a Christian for seven decades, we never graduate from remembering the goodness of the gospel. John Newton knew that. Maybe you know the name, the famed hymn writer of Amazing Grace. He was born in England in 1725. Not a good upbringing, not a good man. Became a sailor at age 11. One of the reasons that we have the sailor stereotype was from John Newton. He joined the English Navy. He got kicked out of the British Navy, which was not an easy thing to do in those days. But one day while he was sailing at sea, there's this crazy storm. And for some reason, he cries out to Jesus and says, save me. And he does. And he gets a hold of his life and begins this work of transformation. And, and John Newton, after becoming previously in his life, after he joined the Navy and got kicked out of the Navy, then he joined the slave trade. Then he gets saved. And God begins to work in his life, and he leaves the slave trade, and he starts fighting for freedom for slaves. Slavery, one of the most horrendous institutions in human history. And he begins fighting for their freedom. But it wasn't until 31 years after his conversion that he wrote the words, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. <laughs> a wretch. That's not the happiest, most kind word we could use to describe ourselves. Even 31 years after his conversion, he still understood the depth of his depravity and the sacrifice of his Savior. The Apostle Paul understood the same thing in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He said this in verse 15. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, of whom I'm the worst. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the worst, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. This is the Apostle Paul, 
the greatest missionary of all time, who wrote over half of the New Testament, he says, I am the worst of sinners. Paul understood the depth of his depravity. Because if God can save John Newton, if God can save the Apostle Paul, he can save you and me. No one is beyond the reach of his forgiveness. And it's not until we understand the depth of our own depravity that we comprehend the gravity of his grace. Those are two things as followers of Christ we have to hold in tension, which gives us this humble confidence, humility, knowing that if it wasn't for Jesus, we'd be dead. But confidence, because, because of Jesus, we have forgiveness, we have reconciliation, we have hope, we have a new life. The guilt that we carry around our, on our shoulders because of past mistakes, we can let that go because we're forgiven. The greater we understand the depth of our own depravity, the more we can comprehend the gravity of his grace. Let's pray together. Father, what a privilege to think on the goodness of the gospel. That you saved us and called us not while we were your friends, but while we were your enemies. While we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And you came and breathed new life in us and gave us the opportunity to say yes. And if there's some here tonight, if there's someone here tonight that doesn't yet know Christ, that has not said yes to Jesus, even in their seat right now, may they pray something like this. I know that I'm a sinner. I know that my sin separates me from you. I believe that Jesus died for me. I trust in his sacrifice. I'm going to turn away from my old life and I'm going to follow you. And Father, for those of us tonight that have a relationship with you, remind us that we should never graduate from thinking on the goodness of the gospel. So fill us with an expectation, with a hope, with a joy that can come only through your son. In Jesus' name, amen.